All right, now we turn to John chapter 5. I'd like to read for you, beginning at verse 1 through the first part of verse 9. Jesus had just performed a healing miracle at the end of chapter 4. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water stirred up. While I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. I want to tell you about a man named Arthur Schick. Mr. Schick was a ruling elder in a PCA church in San Jose, the Presbyterian Church in America, with whom the Orthodox Presbyterian Church had very close relations. He was the clerk of the Presbytery down there near San Jose. He developed a terrible illness, probably Lou Gehrig's disease. And by the time I was able to visit him in the hospital, he was flat on his back. He couldn't move his hands, couldn't move his legs, couldn't smile, couldn't speak. The only thing he could do to indicate to me that he was still living was he could move his eyes. And so as I would come and I would either stand or sit by his bed and share things with him, uh, his eyes would come over toward me and then maybe go back a little bit and come back toward me. So I could tell he was listening and I told him, I said, Art, I said, I believe you understand me completely. So I'm going to share some things with you. I told him church news, that kind of thing. And then I shared with him some thoughts about heaven and so on. I've never known a more helpless person. I've never personally seen a more helpless person than Arthur Schick. Well, in this text, we have another helpless man. Um, he was not completely helpless. He could still do a few things physically, but spiritually, very much in need of, of help. If you were to tell him God helps those who help themselves, it would not have been very good for him nor for Mr. Schick. After this, verse 1, that is after the things happened in verse 4, possibly some time had elapsed until this incident here. It, there was a feast of the Jews. We're not sure which one that was, but they had three main feasts. But nevertheless, this was one of the big ones, apparently. Jesus went up to Jerusalem, went up to Jerusalem by, now there was in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate, a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda. Um, this pool has been uncovered way back in 1888 uh, when they were seeking to do a repair of the Church of St. Anne in the northeast part of Jerusalem. As far as you know, this pool was in the northeast part of Jerusalem, right almost next door to the temple. It was rather a large, imposing pool. I did a little research on that. And um, the entire pool area was 120 feet long, 
40 feet wide and eight foot deep. It was a kind of a sanatorium for invalid people. The uh, Greek word is Esclepion, after Asclepius, the god of medicine. A very appropriate name here for this particular pool. You'll notice a reference also uh, to five roofed colonnades at the end of verse 2. As far as we know, these were places where patients could be kept out of the hot sun. They might be offered water. They might be able to get something uh, to eat, uh, that, that kind of, of thing. So it's interesting how John describes this. He's very much describing a very real place in a very literal location there in Jerusalem. Bethesda, perhaps we've heard that name before. I think there's a Bethesda hospital uh, somewhere. Was that in Denver? Or? Maryland. Yeah, that's right, in Maryland. The word Bethesda means mercy. And these people who were by that pool were very much interested in mercy. We read on, verse 3, in these, that is in these colonnades, lay a multitude of invalids. We don't know how many, but there were many, many invalid people who were in this particular uh, place on this day. They were blind, lame, and paralyzed. What a miserable view that must have been if you were there. I'm sure Jesus was upset by it as he looked at these poor people laying around these five porch areas there uh, with great needs, uh, very helpless in so many, many ways. Very pathetic scene. And certainly this was a picture of the state of Judaism at that time. Uh, John is giving, telling us about this and for no other reason than to let us know there's a picture of what Judaism was like at this time. Very spiritually blind and virtually spiritually dead. Now, as we look at verse 3, in the English Standard Version, it ends with the word paralyzed. And you might have a little footnote there. In my Bible, there's a little footnote 3. It says, some manuscripts, after the word Bethesda, they add uh, waiting for the moving of the water, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. Um, the New King James Version still maintains that, those verses. The English Standard Version does not have them. Also, the New International Version does not have them. Um, what are we to do with it? I'm, so I'm just going to parenthetically say a little bit about those words that are missing, in, at least in the English Standard Version. The, the reason they're missing here is the scholars who put the English Standard Version together felt that new evidence had come as they discover uh, manuscripts of the Gospel of John. and It's amazing what these scholars study in helping us get back to the original uh, language uh, with, with accuracy. And they just felt that these probably were not part of the original that John wrote them, but they were inserted later on for whatever reason, maybe for clarification of why there were so many people there at that particular location, the pool at Bethesda. The question is, what do we do with this, this reference to this angel that would come down and stir the waters of the pool? And when these invalid people saw that, as many as possible, as quickly as possible, they would get into the pool where the water was agitated because they believed they would be healed in some way. So that's, that's the picture here. There are two ways we can approach this. One, 
if, if we would accept that to be part of the original, which some Bible scholars do, we could say, yes, there was literally an angel of the Lord. The Bible's full of references to angels over and over again, doing things on behalf of the Lord. So we could just go with that uh, possible uh, interpretation. So the stirring then would literally be due to an angel who stirred the water up. The other approach we can take is, and this is kind of interesting, that at regular times there would be a water flow coming down into the pool, and depending on how much water there was and various other things, it would stir the water. As the water there came more water flow, and it flowed into this pool, it would have the tendency to, to agitate it. And people believed that when they saw that, when that happened, hey, I want to get in there because I can be healed or at least help with my, my problem there. So I'll leave, let it up to you which view you want to take, which one you want to hold. But that we're not going to deal with that in detail except for what I just said. I want to move on then to verse number 4. Notice how verse number 4 begins. One man was there. In verse 3, reference to the multitude. All these people. We don't know how many there were, but according to the dimensions of the pool that I just shared with you, must have been quite a large number of people. But now John takes us to one man. One particular invalid man. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. That's a very long time to be in that kind of condition. We're not sure. Probably it was a paralysis of some sort based upon what else we read in just a few moments. Uh, A lameness of some kind. John may have selected this particular sign and put it in his gospel in view of the leaping lame reference and the coming of the Messiah in a text like Isaiah 35, 6. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer. And John, in putting this together, thought this would be a good sign, one of the miracles of Jesus. I think I'll put that in as evidence that the Messiah had come because we see the lame leaping like a a deer. Verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there, and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? Backing up just a bit here, we see Jesus seeing this man. And he sees this man with a special eye of sympathy. He knew the situation. He knows what the problem is with this man. He cannot walk, among other things. Um, There were other people there as well, but Christ's focus now becomes on this one man. And uh, he knew that this was going to be a big turning point in the history of his uh, ministry, that uh, the the bloodhound soon will be let loose by the scribes and Pharisees and will really begin to come after him, relentless until they put him to death. Yet he is willing to go into that situation on our behalf to speak to this one man, this very helpless man. He asks the question, do you want to be healed? In the modern vernacular, do you really want to get well? Do you have the will to be cured? Now, that seems a very strange question to ask a man in his situation, did the very fact this man was at the pool 
wanting to be healed by this water lead him to say almost right away, yes, I do. But he does not answer that quite that way. Going back to the question, it looks strange that he would ask a question like that. Do you want to be healed? But consider this. In our day, uh, a fellow named J.A. Finley has said that an eastern beggar, eastern refer to the Middle East area, an eastern beggar often loses a good living by being cured of his disease. Whatever he was, he was willing to live with the disease because he could get alms and help support himself by keeping the disease. So that's one thing to keep in mind. Um, think of the homeless in our day. Many of the homeless don't want a home. They want to live in the streets. They're very happy with that. And they're kind of bothered, not all, but some are kind of bothered when somebody tries to come and help them. I don't want your help. Leave me alone. Invalids sometimes desire the sympathy and aid, aid of other friends. They don't want to be healed completely because they have certain people that always come up and say, oh, how are you doing today? How are you doing? Oh, hang in there, hang in there. I'll, I'll do what I can to help you. And they kind of like that. Others long only for death. They just want to get a die and get it over with. So when Jesus said, do you want to be healed? He's really saying, do you really want to be healed? So there's something behind that and why Jesus asked it. But, of course, he had a greater purpose. He wanted to bring this man to acknowledge his deep misery, his deep condition, bad condition, and his inability to help himself. He was completely helpless. He could not help himself. And to awaken him a new yearning for the benefit that was about to come to him. In other words, Jesus is assisting him, even at this, by this question, with his faith. Do you want to be healed? Do you have enough confidence in me that I can help you? So it's just the initial part of building faith in this particular man, as well as to put hope into his heart. Jesus wanted him to get his eyes off of the pool and get his eyes on him. Are you willing to put yourself just as you are into my hands? Are you ready for me to do what you can do, not do for yourself? Now, the sick man must have been amazed at the question by the way he, he answers here. In fact, we wonder if he really, it really registered him what the question was. You think he would answer, well, not at this time, or yes, or no, something like that. But look at his answer in verse 7. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water stirred up, and while I'm going in another step down before me. Now, he may have taken a quick glance at Jesus when the question was asked to him, yet his eyes are on the pool. He has to do something in the pool if he's ever going to be healed. The rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, what must I do to be saved? I've got to do something. So this man even thinks at this point, well, I've got to get into that pool. That's what I need to do. And it seems like the question has gone over his head here at the, at the beginning. He doesn't seem to regard Jesus as any kind of a healer. Perhaps he was one that had not heard about Jesus, or if he had heard about Jesus, he just really didn't pay much attention to that. John Calvin writes, He does not regard Jesus as a possible healer. Uh, this sick man does what we nearly all do. He limits God's help to his own ideas and does not dare promise himself more than he conceives in his mind. 
So he's very captive to these negative feelings. He answers Jesus in verse 7 almost as if, why, who are you? Why, why are you here? Don't you know about my problem? He's complaining about the injustice of the system. It's not working for him. He wants to get in the pool, but he's not able to get there quick enough because somebody else steps in front of him, which leads you to wonder, these other people, how concerned were they in this man? Everybody, everybody from themselves probably. And when they saw the water begin to be agitated, either by angelic action or by the flow of the water, they thought that has a certain medicinal quality. And probably this pool at Bethesda probably did have a medicinal benefit. Just as today, there are warm springs and th- those things kind of uh, around in our country and other countries where people get into these salt baths or whatever they are. They, at least they, psychologically, they feel better. And maybe there is some medicinal benefit as well. Well, he couldn't enjoy that because no one would help him get in there so he could do it. Merrill Tenney says the paralysis of his body was accompanied by a partial paralysis of his will. So not only his body paralyzed, but his will is paralyzed even in that answer to Jesus. But Jesus is not going to give up. Verse 8, Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. Jesus confronts the self-pity of this man very, very directly with this sharp command. Now, the bed would have been a simple pad of some sort, like a little mattress or just some cloth or whatever it was that he, he laid on. It could be rolled up and easily removed to another location. So as Jesus speaks the words of verse 8, this point we can see the man now paying a little more attention to Jesus. First time he heard the question, and said, don't bother about this, you can't help me anyway. I'm, I need to get in that pool, and somebody won't let me in there. Nobody's there to take me in, and that's what I need to do. Now Jesus comes back again, and he gives him this command, get up, take up your bed, and walk. So now the man undoubtedly has to be a little more interested. We can see him kind of turning to look at Jesus and wondering, who, who is this person? How can I, he's asking me to do something I cannot do. He had just acknowledged his helplessness, his complete inability to get into the pool for the healing. And now Jesus asked him something that seems to be mocking him. Jesus had just presented this man to take immediate personal action. The man realized that that Jesus wanted him to do it right away, right then, get up. In effect, Jesus is saying here, my friend, your eye is on the pool. You feel you need to get into the pool. I'm asking you to turn away from the pool and look, turn to me. Don't go that way. Go toward me. Now, Jesus may have said some other things as well that John does not record in the conversation here. But clearly, Jesus is exerting his authority and his uh, demeanor must have at that point began to make an impression upon this man. And John goes on to tell us in verse 9, And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now, the word, Greek word translated at once is we sometimes translate immediately. It's one of Mark's favorite words. John doesn't use it very much, but he uses it here to stress the fact that immediately this man heard what Jesus said, 
in some way, he thought, oh, I might as well try it. I, I think I can do it. And he gets up, healed, and walks. Another remarkable miracle by Jesus. So that's the miracle itself. How can we apply it? Well, I like to try applying it with the five points of Calvinism. If you don't know what they are, I'll tell you what they are as we go through. I think we have an illustration of all five, some more stronger than others. Number one, total depravity or total inability. Certainly this man pictures that. Unable to do anything to heal himself, to help himself. And there at Bethesda we see humanity with all its human religion, should I say, with all its cumbersome machinery um, and disappointing ordinances. Uh, We have a picture here of India with its Ganges River, Tibet with its prayer wheels, Islam with its holy pilgrimages, Rome with its vigils, fasts, beads, holy water, and even Protestants with their performances of going to church and giving money and saying creeds and reciting verses, yet nothing changing in their heart. They're as helpless spiritually as any of these other religions are. Sinners waiting by their Bethesdas, unresponsive to the gospel because they are unable to do so. They are totally unable to reach out by faith because they're born with Adam's nature. They're spiritually dead. They have no desire to forsake their evil ways. Even like a certain man named Thomas Fletcher, I'm not sure who he was, he said, I would like to embrace Christianity and believe in Christ as the Son of God, but I simply can't, underline that word, I can't compromise my intelligence by believing something I feel is unreasonable. So here's a man interested in Christianity, as many are, but they just don't come to the place where they see their sinfulness and their need of a Savior. They're spiritually helpless. Total depravity. Second point. Unconditional election. There was a multitude of people there. I emphasized that a moment ago. Yet John says, talks about one man. A multitude, all equally powerless, helpless, in many ways, paralyzed with lameness or whatever it might be. Here was the great physician himself incarnate right in their midst on that particular day. He could have healed them all, could he have not? Why did not Jesus say, your attention please? All of you who are here trying to get into the pool, I hereby declare you healed. Take up your bed and walk. But he didn't. He could have, but he didn't. Why only the one man? It's impossible to find any ground of a man that he was such a great guy. Um, why was he singled out for special favor? And the only explanation is the sovereign good pleasure of Jesus himself on that particular day. Down in verse 21, for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. Ephesians 1.4, Paul says to the believers at the church of Ephesus, He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. 
chose us, elected us, chose us, picked us out unconditionally. Third point, limited atonement. Now, this is probably the weakest part of my application here, but I think it's, it's related in this sense, that as that man lay by the pool in Bethesda, Jesus was in his ministry of active obedience, actively living a perfect righteous life to secure for us the righteousness that we need, we receive by faith, imputed to us, credited to us, and that way we are justified. He's on his way toward Calvary. He's laid the gauntlet down. He knows the reactions are going to be coming against his ministry. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5, uh, verse 6, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, verse 8, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So Christ is in this period of going to the cross to give his life for his people. And if you're a believer here this, this afternoon, you needed, as well as I needed, the power of the Holy Spirit to open up my heart to hear the gospel, not only audibly, but to understand it and to see my need of a Savior and put my trust in Christ. Fourth point, irresistible grace. We have here in our text a portrayal, not so much of a search of faith, because this man had not given any evidence he was seeking to put his faith in Christ, but a search of the grace of Jesus himself, reaching down to this man, undeserving, a sinner, and to bring him to himself. If even one of these people at Bethesda that day were to be healed by coming to Christ, he or she needed to be drawn to him. Over John chapter 6, verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. This man is not going to take up his bed and begin walking unless the Father draws him. And that drawing is usually by the work of the Holy Spirit in particular, that works in the heart, that changes the heart, changes the life, enabling a sinner to come. Never had a sinner been more helpless than this guy, but he had no power himself to heal himself. The Lord had to step in. And then perseverance of the saints. To come to faith in Christ requires an intention, continual desire for him. In verse 8, we read, Go back to the right chapter. Verse 8, Jesus said to him, get, take, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And the tense of the verb is walk and keep walking. Don't just walk a couple of steps. When you walk and keep walking. And so we read that he did take up his bed and walked. And so by implication, we would think that he would become a follower of Jesus. We're not told that so much, but certainly that would be his responsibility, as, we indicate, as Jesus indicates with other people that he talked to. He expected them to follow him, to be his disciples. And many, of course, chose to do that in addition to the 12 disciples there. So again, that's not a strong point for the perseverance of the saints, but I'm just trying to use this as a way of applying this particular uh, text. So there was Arthur Schick laying on this hospital bed, completely helpless. The world around us is simply helpless humanity. You work with them, you see them, they're in your home, they're relatives, friends, whatever it is, and they just cannot understand the gospel or they have no interest in it. 
There's somebody helpless. They need the Lord to open up their hearts. So we need to pray, like we're praying for, for uh, James' brother and his friend, Daniel and Vance, Lance, that they would come to know the Lord because their hearts have to be opened before they can get up and walk by faith and come to Jesus Christ. And of course, that's your responsibility. My responsibility is to hear the call of Christ, his invitation to come to him and put our trust and faith completely in him. Let me close with these two verses from one of the hymns in our hymnal. Tis not that I did choose thee, for, Lord, that could not be. This heart would still refuse thee, hast thou not chosen me. Thou, from the sin that stained me, hast cleansed and set me free. Of old thou hast ordained me, that I should live to thee. To a sovereign mercy call me, and taught my opening mind. The world had also, had else enthralled me, to heavenly glory is blind. My heart owns none before thee, for thy rich grace I thirst. This knowing, if I love thee, thou must have loved me first. With David, in Psalm 30, let us cry out, O Lord my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. Shall we pray? Father, we give you praise today, we who are your children, for working in our lives in years past, time past. Some of us have come to know you at a young age. For others, it's later in their life. But you are the one to whom we owe glory. We thank you, O Lord, and humble ourselves before your sovereign choice. You are God, we are your creatures. You have every right to do what you do, and you always do it without going against your own holiness. And so we are grateful that we are part of the church of Jesus Christ, of the saints of God, cleansed by the blood of Christ, and standing righteous before you in him. We pray that this might be an encouragement to us as we leave here this afternoon and go our separate ways, as we look forward to being again with your people next Lord's Day. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.